You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast at savage.love. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, I'm concerned for my listeners in Michigan. It's not just the state's ratio of right-wing MAGA nutjobs to reasonable human beings that has me worried for all my listeners in Michigan and other states and the United States. And it's not just the two Republicans on Michigan's obscure board of canvassers that have me worried. A quick digression, those two Republican appointees to that board last week blocked an abortion rights amendment to the state constitution from appearing on the ballot this November in Michigan for absolutely absurd reasons. Something about a typo in the text of the measure, a couple of words being too close together. But what these two Republican fucks are really worried about, what Republican fucks all over the country are worried about right now, is another state doing what Kansas just did. Voters in Kansas, as you may recall, overwhelmingly came down in favor of abortion rights. And voters are going to do the same in other states, red states and purple states, as soon as they have a chance. More than 750,000 eligible voters in Michigan signed petitions to get the amendment onto the ballot this November, close to double the number of signatures required. So yeah, that thing is going to pass if and when it makes it onto the ballot in Michigan. And it still might make it onto the ballot this November. A lawsuit has already been filed. What I'm concerned about today, right now, is a 1931 law that came back into effect in Michigan after the Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade. That 1931 law outlaws selling or administering drugs with the intent to procure miscarriage or produce abortion. The law is currently on hold while challenges make their way through the court system in Michigan. But it turns out banning abortion isn't the only thing that 1931 law does. But first... When we talk about medication abortion, and we have talked about medication abortion a lot on this show recently, we're referring to two hard-to-pronounce, at least for me, drugs, mifepistrone and misoprostol, or M&Ms as I prefer to call them to avoid mispronouncing them, two medications that when taken together effectively induce miscarriage and terminate a pregnancy. They're safe, they're effective, women can self-administer these drugs at home, and they're relatively recent developments. These drugs were first approved for use by the FDA in 2000. So how did this law, again, a law passed in Michigan in 1931, ban medications that wouldn't be available for decades? It's not that lawmakers in Michigan 90 years ago could see into the future. At the time, there were snake oil pills and potions and tinctures and elixirs sold through the mail under names like Dr. Peter's French Renovating Pills and Hardy's Woman's Friend that were marketed as fixes for, quote, menstrual suppression that would restore, quote, a woman's regularity and remove every impurity. These medications, these snake oil, literally in some cases oils, contain herbs, laxatives, soap, ginger, mercury. Some apparently were effective some of the time, many were not, some were toxic and unsafe. And it was the sale of those pills, mostly through the mail that Michigan banned in 1931, But if the law comes back into effect now, post-Roe and post-lawsuits, it will ban modern medication abortions, not just French renovating pills. And the forced birth crowd wants to do just that. Ban the sale of M&Ms in person, in pharmacies, through the mail, all over the country, not just in Michigan. 
All right. So that 1931 law in Michigan that is poised to take effect didn't just ban abortion. It also banned, and I'm quoting here, adultery, blasphemy, cursing and swearing, sodomy, gross indecency, cohabitation, and seduction, according to the Holland Sentinel, a daily paper in Holland, Michigan. Once upon a time, that law also banned incest, dueling, and fortune-telling. But at some point, legislators in Michigan, somewhere between 1931 and now, legalized incest and dueling and fortune-telling, but not cohabitation or swearing. Living with someone you're not married to? A crime in Michigan, technically, and could be again soon, really. Sleeping with your mom? Not a crime in Michigan. Hell, you can duel with your mom if you want. Just don't swear at her or sodomizer, and you're good. Cassandra Liebrink and Sarah Leach, reporters at the Holland Sentinel, decided to ring up county prosecutors in Michigan to see if any of them planned to enforce the rest of this law, not just the abortion ban. They wanted to see if any of Michigan's elected county prosecutors were planning to prosecute people for adultery, blasphemy, and sodomy, and cohabitation. And they all said no. One was a little coy about it, but they all said no, really, except one. Christopher Becker, Kent County Prosecutor, says he will file charges against someone whenever the facts and, quote, applicable Michigan law require him to do so. Quoting here from Liebrink and Leach's story in the Holland Sentinel again, when asked via email if that stance was true, that he would prosecute for laws on seduction, adultery, blasphemy, cursing, and sodomy, Becker wrote simply, yes. All right. That would be crazy. It would be crazy if officials in Michigan's fourth largest and fastest growing county, where the city of Grand Rapids is located, started throwing people in jail for having roommates or swearing at them or committing adultery. Both the sad kind of adultery where someone is wronged when you cheat on your spouse or the fun kind of adultery where no one is wronged and everyone is enjoying themselves, swinging or hot spousing or cuckolding. All technically adultery, legally adultery, but not sad adultery. Liebrink and Leach's story made the rounds on Twitter last week, and a lot of very reasonable people jumped into the conversation to reassure the rest of us that no prosecutor is actually going to file charges against someone for adultery or sodomy, which the law in Michigan defines as, quote, any sexual penetration, however slight. So even a quickly aborted blowjob counts. The reassurers said that no one is going to be crazy enough to charge people with those crimes, not even... The guy who's telling us that's exactly what he plans to do? The reassurers out there, these are the same people, reassurers on the left and the right, who told us that Republican-appointed judges wouldn't be so crazy as to actually overturn Roe v. Wade. That was just talk. No way those dogs wanted to catch that car. These same folks told us Republican-elected officials wouldn't be so crazy as to ban abortion in cases of rape or incest or to save the life of the mother. They also told us Republicans in red states wouldn't be so crazy as to threaten to imprison women for getting abortions. Well, Roe has been overturned and abortion is illegal in almost half the United States in all cases, including rape, incest, and to save the life of the mother. Republicans are talking about throwing women in jail for getting abortions and throwing anyone who helps a woman get an abortion into jail or helps a trans man or non-binary person who needs an abortion. No exceptions for rape, incest, the life of the mother or even trans and non-binary folks that Republicans don't want to become parents anyway. So yeah, at this point, anyone who tells you not to worry because no one is crazy enough to do that, whatever that is, however crazy that sounds, 
that person hasn't been paying attention, is crazy themselves, or is knowingly running interference for the craziest and meanest and cruelest fucking people out there who want to do and have done and want to continue doing the craziest, meanest, and cruelest fucking things to people. Listeners in Kent County, Michigan, home to almost 700,000 people, more than a few Lovecast listeners in there, you might want to be careful out there. If the courts uphold that 1931 law banning abortion and you're not allowed to vote to amend the state constitution to protect abortion rights, hell, even if you are allowed to vote to enshrine abortion rights in your state constitution, the rest of that 1931 law is still going to go into effect and you're going to have to watch your fucking mouths and refrain from picking people up on apps because seduction is against the law too. Basically, Kent County residents, whenever you want to swear or get laid, you're going to have to head to Detroit or Ann Arbor or Saugatuck to do it, unless you want to do it with your mom, because that's perfectly legal in Michigan and perfectly fine with Kent County prosecutor Chris Becker. Psst, Kent County voters, Chris Becker, up for re-election in 2024, vote him out. All right, coming up on the show today on the Micro Savage Lovecast, tons of your cues, lots of my A's, and some ads in the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast that you can subscribe to at savage.love. More cues, more A's, no ads. And my guest this week, Rena Martin, a sexual intimacy coach and former sex crimes prosecutor, joins me to take a couple of questions from my listeners. We talk about preventing negative past sexual experiences with people you hated from ruining current sexual experiences, great ones potentially, with people you love. And we also talk about how to support someone who's experienced sexual assault but isn't ready and may never be ready to talk to the authorities about it. And in this week's Savage Love, the column, tips for straight teachers on finding NSA oral, tips for gay subs on finding 100% doms, and more talk about porn in long-term relationships. The column is at savage.love slash savagelove, and you can and should read it right after you finish listening to this week's Savage Lovecast. Hi, Dan. I was hoping you could give some advice on how to navigate your partner exploring their sexuality. My boyfriend has always kind of been a little gay. He, I think he might have some shame around it that he has not really processed yet, but I'm fine with it. I, I don't mind. I found it, I think, bi guys are really hot. Anyway, he is struggling to explore this side of him and he's being very secretive and it's causing a lot of problems in our relationship where we've had a lot of uh, issues of uh, infidelity, not in the same way, but with a previous girlfriend and a lot of trust issues. Anyway, um, he's sneaking around. He apparently is slowly becoming addicted to porn and is not wanting to have sex with me anymore. So we decided to take a break from sex but I don't really know what needs to happen going forward. Any advice or tips would be greatly appreciated. Break the fuck up with him. That's how you navigate your way through this particular kind of exploration of a partner's sexuality. He's not able to be there for you sexually anymore. He's hiding whatever it is he's exploring, whatever it is he's doing from you. He's choosing, I don't think he's addicted to porn. I don't think people get addicted to porn, but he's choosing I assume gay porn over sex with his girlfriend, that would be you. You guys aren't having sex anymore. You're taking a break from sex. Okay, take a break from each other. Break the fuck up with him. Tell him to go on his 
explorations to go spelunk down into some dude's asses or whatever it is he wants to explore right now. But you're not just going to stand there in the apartment. I assume that you two share being completely cut out of his sex life with him having completely shut down your sex life, your shared sex life, what he's asking you for right now, it isn't a fair thing to ask. You know, I'm having an issue. I'm on an exploration. I'm trying to figure out who I am sexually. All fine things. If you can still, I think with your, the partner who's you're asking to be patient and create some space in your relationship for those explorations, if you're still able to be there for them, sexually and emotionally. And he's not able to be there for you as a romantic and sexual partner right now. And so what else does he have to do to get you to break the fuck up with him? He's got a shit on your pillow. Come on. He's not fucking you. He's hiding whatever it is he's doing from you. He's lying. He's sneaking around. He's feeding your self-esteem and sexual ego into a shredder by choosing porn over you a hundred percent of the time. Yeah. You don't have to stand there and take those body blows, those emotional blows again and again and again, because he's on an exploration and he's trying to figure out who the fuck he is. And yeah, having a bi boyfriend, that's really hot. There are a lot of straight women out there and bisexual women out there who would love to have bisexual boyfriends. Sounds to me like your boyfriend might not be bisexual. Sounds to me like your boyfriend might be gay. And if not gay, at least useless to you sexually and emotionally right now. He's not just failing you sexually and cutting you off and cutting you out sexually. He's lying and sneaking and hiding. And you're having trust issues. Yeah, he's failing you emotionally. And who knows, maybe he is bi and maybe he just needs to suck a million dicks and then he'll be ready to start having some opposite sex sex again, some heterosexual sex again. But if this goes on like this for much longer, the lying, the sneaking, the hiding, the trust issues, that fissure that's going to grow into a grand fucking canyon if he does circle back to wanting to have sex with you, you're probably not going to want to have sex with him at that point because he's treated you so selfishly and cruelly. So yeah, maybe break up with him now. And when he's done with his explorations and he knows who he is and he can communicate with you about it, you can date again. But if you hang out with him under these circumstances, under these conditions, for the time being, when he circles back to opposite sex, heterosexual sex, you're not going to want to fuck him, and you're going to have to break up with him then. So break up with him now. Hi, Dan. Straight cis male here from the South, recently divorced. I have for many years had what I guess is a fetish. I've always had a problem having an orgasm when I'm with a partner whose pussy doesn't get just like super crazy wet. I've been this way as far back as I can remember, and it's not from watching porn. When I was younger, my most intense experiences with sex were with women who got really, really wet during foreplay, like so wet that it was running down their legs when I was rubbing their clit. And I don't know, that just sort of stuck with me and became became a thing I need in order to get off. 
Uh, I've been that way for over 20 years now. So I have two questions. First, when I'm on dating sites, I don't know how to meet women who are going to be able to satisfy this fetish. I can't exactly say in my profile that I'm only looking for women who get really wet because at least in the rural area I live in, women don't want to hear anything graphic or overtly sexual in dating profiles. So what happens is I'll meet a woman that I hit it off with, we start getting to know each other, and then we start having sex, and I can't orgasm no matter what the two of us try, no matter how many times. And sometimes I'm kind of okay with that because I'm big into pleasing my partner, so I enjoy giving her lots of foreplay, lots of oral, and as many orgasms as she wants. And that ends up becoming the biggest draw of sex for me since I can't get off myself. I kind of just get my satisfaction from their orgasms. Still, ultimately, I'd like to be able to come too, but I don't know how to meet women whose bodies do this thing I love so much without meeting women whose bodies don't. So that's my first question. How do I put this in a dating profile or how do I talk in a tactful way about my fetish with a potential partner before we actually have sex? And then my second question, I mean, I'm getting older. I'm in my late 40s now, and I'm at the age where women who are my age are reaching menopause, which means their bodies are even less likely to do this thing that I seem to need them to do. Obviously, as women age, this is a thing that's just not going to happen as much. So if I'm not able to find a long-term partner who gets me, who gets wet enough for me to consistently get off, I mean, can you get rid of a fetish you've had your whole life? Can you train yourself to not need that visual or tactile thing that you've always needed? Uh, I should also say that using lube doesn't seem to help. It's not a matter of the way the wetness feels when I'm inside her. It's more a psychological thing for me. It's like something in my brain needs to know that my partner is turned on enough that, look, she gets so wet that she can't control it. Um, I've always been somebody whose main turn on is knowing that my partner is turned on by me. And even though the logical part of my brain knows that women can be turned on without being physically wet, the primal sexual part of my brain still needs to see that wetness, to touch it, to taste it, even to have it all over me. What do I do, Dan? There's no tactful way to put must get dripping wet, must produce vaginal secretions when aroused to the point that they're running down your leg and they get all over me. For me to enjoy sex, you can't put that on a regular dating app. As you already know, you say you live in a part of the country where you couldn't lead with that. Well, I'm here to tell you from another part of the country that you probably couldn't lead with that here either. This is a sort of thing. If this is absolutely something that you require, this is a sort of thing that you're going to have to find out by actually going to bed with people. Just like, you know, most people who are size queens who require great big dicks don't ask a question about the size of a guy's genitals before they go to bed with them for the first time. They just go to bed with them. Then they see if the dude's big enough for a second date or big enough to marry and run off with forever and live happily impaled ever after with. Okay, then you keep seeing that guy. If not, well, then you... Don't see that guy again. You know, if I, you know, if I like to get fucked in the ass and, you know, a dick that was bent or curved up in a certain way hit my prostate just so and I could settle for nothing else but that kind of dick and that was the kind of dick I wanted, it would probably turn guys off who had exactly the kind of dick I was looking for if I put that on a regular dating app. Maybe I could get away with that on Grinder, but on a regular 
dating app. Probably couldn't get away with that. So I don't think you're going to get away with this. You're just going to have to meet women you like, get to know them, get to sleep with them, and then see. But as you correctly predict, you're on a bit of a collision course with biology here. You know, if you're dating women who are your age, roughly, and you hope to find a new long-term partner, women tend to produce less vaginal secretions as they age, just as men produce less semen as they age. And eventually, many women, including women who got gushingly, drippingly wet when aroused, later in life will be absolutely 100% just as aroused and produce less vaginal secretions. I don't know if I would describe this as a, a, a fetish. You've made this strong association between your partner's wetness, your partner flooding the basement, and your desirability to that partner. And you want to feel desired, and that's a fine thing to want to feel. A lot of women like to see their male partner hard, rock hard, rock hard the whole time because it makes them feel desired, makes them feel, it's affirming of their desirability. So I don't want to fault you for wanting that kind of visual tactile confirmation of your desirability because lots of people want those kinds of visible tactile confirmations of their desirability. But you got to be realistic and you're going to have to probably, you know, if you find an age appropriate partner and get older together, you're going to have to will yourself to create a new association, to find something else that's going on that affirms your desirability. And you're going to probably have to find a lube that works for you and works for your partner. And there are lots of different kinds of lubes out there and experiment. You know, someone can apply a lot of lube before sex, before you and your dick march into the room. If lube running down your partner's legs that you didn't see applied or have to apply yourself recreates for you with some suspension of disbelief, those early sensations, you can still, you know, meet this particular need or your partner can help you meet this particular need for this particular kind of sensation during sex, even if you're, you know, using a little bit of industrial light magic to recreate it. You can also tell yourself that this woman who wants to sleep with you wants to sleep with you. And maybe some verbal affirmation of that, maybe some dirty talk about that can take the place of all that wetness, which you're less likely to get as you get older, just as you're less likely to have reliably as rock hard erections as you had when you were younger. So this is a case where you're going to have to somehow empower your logical brain to win the argument it's having with the more primal part of your brain. And what you need to see, what you need to taste, what you need to touch, you may need to simulate. Not simulate your partner's desire for you, that would be there, but with the generous application of a really delicious tasting lubricant, recreate that effect for yourself with your partner's help and then buy in. Hi Dan, my husband Jim has a beard. I don't have a beard. 
Jim thinks beards are super hot. I don't really get it. A few weeks ago, Jim and I were at a gay resort when a drunk guy with a beard stumbled up and asked, Do you mind? Then, without waiting for an answer, he reached up and started rubbing Jim's beard. Here's the thing. I mind. First of all, the guy didn't wait for consent. Second of all, monkey pox. Now, I admit that incident was unusual, but guys are always saying how much they love my husband's beard, and at least a few times a year, one asks to touch. Jim says, if you can figure out a nice way of saying no, I'll say no. So Dan, please, what's a nice way of saying no? Look at my beard, but don't touch. Jim's a huge fan of your podcast. He's a Magnum Edition subscriber, so I know he's listening to this right now. I'm right there with you on beards. I've never found beards to be sexy. Jim disagrees with me in that stranger with the Southern accent at the gay resort. He disagrees with me and you. Jim thinks his beard is sexy. That's fine for Jim. Also, I think it's telling that it's you calling into the show uh, with an issue, taking issue with other men walking up to your husband and without asking or without waiting for an answer, touching his beard. I think that's telling because maybe what it tells me is that it's not Jim who has a problem with this, with men finding his beard sexy and touching it without asking. It's you because what those men are telling Jim in those moments is that, yeah, his beard is sexy. And every time that happens, it makes it less likely that Jim will one day wake up and shave off the beard that you don't care for, that you don't like. And like I said, right there with you, not so into beards myself. Don't want to contribute to any monkeypox shame or stigma. Of course, it is important to get people's consent before you touch any part of their bodies. And there are circumstances under which just asking for someone's consent to touch their body is inappropriate and is going to, even if it isn't technically a consent violation, feel like a consent violation or feel like you've been just straight up violated. But let's not contribute to any monkeypox panic. What we know now about monkeypox is the strain that is spreading, the monkeypox we are fighting right now, sexually transmitted. Simple touch, like reaching out and touching a stranger's beard, highly unlikely to transmit monkeypox. So no risk of monkeypox. Now, if you and Jim were hooking up with guys at that gay resort, there was your risk of monkeypox. But if you were just hanging out and there was some casual, incidental touch, even if it was technically non-consensual, at least where you were concerned. Again, I wonder where Jim comes down on all of this. Not a risk for monkeypox. As for a way to tell people not to touch your beard uh, and for it to seem nice or friendly, uh, usually when someone asks if they can touch you and you say no, they're going to be a little butthurt about that. However, nicely you put it. Men are not good. Straight men, gay men, bi men, not good at hearing the word no. No one likes to hear the word no, but men in particular, not great with the word no. So even if you put as friendly or funny or nice or charming a spin on no as you possibly could, or as Jim possibly could, if he were inclined to say no, which I wonder if he really wants to say no since it's you calling and not Jim since it's you that took issue 
with this southern accented stranger at the gay resort touching Jim's beard without waiting for a yes and not Jim that took issue with it. There's probably no way for Jim to say this. I mean, he can say it nicely. It's just not going to be received by the person to whom he is saying no as nice as the thing they wanted to hear. It's going to be the exact opposite of the thing they wanted to hear. And I suspect, I suspect that it's not a thing that Jim particularly wants to say, even as much as you wish he would say it. Hi, Dan. Uh, this is a 34-year-old cis male, straight. I've been dating this woman for a while, uh, about four months, and she recently found out that I essentially cheated on her in our first months of, of dating, like the first few weeks of dating. And basically uh, what happened is he was gone for three weeks. I ended up going on one date and ended up getting kind of drunk and hooking up with this person. And after that happened, I felt so bad. I ended up breaking up with her and I ended up getting a therapist. And a couple of weeks later, a week later, I think we ended up getting back together. So we got back together. And ever since we got back together, things have been really incredible. You know, she's like really this is an incredible person that I really love being around and feel so safe around and, you know, fantastic sex. Everything is really awesome. But it turns out that that person that I went on a date with was her friend's roommate. And I guess they were on some site that was, you know, essentially set up to um, figure out, like, are we dating the same guy? It was a Facebook group. And I guess that triggered this woman to say, like, hey, maybe this person is this guy. And they contacted this girl and this woman I'm seeing and let her know that I had dated, gone on a date and fucked with this woman. So anyway, obviously, that was really upsetting for her to hear uh, because things had been really great. And so she initially broke up with me. We had some conversations. It seems now that she's in a place, given kind of the circumstances, that she's okay with trying things again. So I guess my question for you really is, like, what are ways that, I can rebuild this trust that's been fractured. Are there any strategies or any things that I can do like to really help sort of expedite that process? I mean, maybe there's no way to expedite it, but if there's anything I can do to really help help her understand that I'm really in this and I want to be in this and I'm really committed to it and don't want anything like that, obviously, to happen ever again and just to help her feel more comfortable. Okay, I- I'm trying to wrap my head around this straight drama in the first month that you were dating, your on again, off on, off on girlfriend, in that first month, she was away for three weeks of that first month and you went on a date with someone else. So basically you'd only seen this person, been seeing them for a week before they left for the rest of that month. In that week that you were together, did you get married? Did you make it a commitment of some sort? Did you go exclusive? Did you have a conversation about monogamy? Because the expectation that somebody that you've been seeing for seven days, if you leave for three weeks, is somehow monogamous to you seems unrealistic. That seems like an unrealistic expectation on her part. You also say that you felt so bad about quote unquote cheating on her. And I don't think it counts as cheating at that point. I think it counts as you were not yet exclusive and you were both just kind of feeling your way around and dating. 
you felt so bad about it that you broke up with her. You don't mention whether that breakup included a confession. Oh my God, I cheated on you with somebody else. I slept with somebody else in the second or in the three quarters of the first month that we were together, that you were gone. I slept with somebody else, hooked up with somebody else. Or if you broke up with her, you ended it just to avoid having that difficult conversation. And then you got back together again. Did she know about the fact that you felt so guilty for sleeping with somebody else that that's why you initially ended the relationship? Did you tell her that? Did she know that? And if she didn't, then was she completely blindsided by this person getting on this, what sounds like a completely toxic, straight, bullshit Facebook group where everybody tries to figure out if they dated anybody that anybody else that they know is possibly dating, which is some fucking er straight bullshit right there. Straight people, my God, have this obsession with ruling people out, declaring people off limits, that if I've ever dated this person, you can never date this person. The bro code, the straight boys call it. I'm not sure what the straight girls call it, but apparently it's in force in this crazy ass Facebook group. We don't have this luxury of, as I've said a million times on this show, we don't have this luxury in queer land of declaring people we've ever touched with our dicks off limits to our friends as possible sex partners or romantic partners because we're such a tiny percentage of the population in comparison to straight people. We can't waste potential partners, nor would we attempt to deny them to our exes and sometimes our current partners because that would seem... Selfish, controlling, nuts, batshit, crazy. So yeah, it seems to me that if you told your girlfriend at the time when, when you broke up, why you were breaking up, and she also wanted to end the relationship for that reason because within the first month after not seeing her, you know, during a time when you weren't going to see her for three weeks and after a week barely knew her, you continued to date around and sleep around a little bit. If she wanted to end the relationship then, okay. And then you guys got back together. She shouldn't be mad at you now for being blindsided by this information that it happened to be the roommate of a friend of hers that you fucked Unless it seemed like you were preying on her friends or picking off her friends. Was this also a coincidence? Was it a coincidence that you turned, it turned out that this woman that you hooked up with happened to be a friend or a roommate of a friend of her? It just, oh my God, this is such straight bullshit. Look, get back together again. You can prove to her that you're trustworthy over time by continuing to tell her the truth, I would also, if I had a moment with your girlfriend, encourage her to be angry at the real bad actor here, which is if, again, you've made full disclosures, you withheld nothing from your girlfriend throughout. The real bad actor here is this friend of her roommates who reached out for no fucking reason at all to let her know that her boyfriend had hooked up with her once three and a half months ago. Why? Why would you call someone and tell them, or why would you reach a DM someone to tell them that about the person they're seeing? Unless your goal is to stir up some shit and ruin some maliciously, reach out and ruin somebody else's perfectly lovely relationship that had 
a kind of typical bumpy start. Ah, ah, your girlfriend should still be your girlfriend and your girlfriend shouldn't be mad at you for touching somebody else with your dick after you'd only been dating for a week. She should be mad at this malicious, not going to use the C word here, but I'm tempted, this malicious person who got on this bullshit Facebook group and called her up and ruined her day for no good fucking reason. Oh my God. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and the tech-savvy at-risk youth. So I was using my vibrator the other day, one of the like little handheld ones that basically stays on the outside of you. You know, I used it maybe for 10 to 15 minutes, so nothing super long, but after I used it, my hand was like numb and tingling for probably, oh, I don't know, like, 15 to 20 minutes after. And um, this has never happened before. I've had this particular vibrator for a long time. So I'm wondering if I'm like causing nerve damage in my hand. I tried doing some cursory internet searches, but you know, basically only found information for if you've been using a jackhammer for 10 years. And that's certainly not what I've been doing. So if you can let me know if this is something I need to like worry about. I guess I should also note that this is like a high quality toy from a high quality company. So it wasn't like getting hot or deteriorating or anything. I just, my hand was weird for a while after. I don't have much in the way of insight for you here, but I have inference. We can infer that if vibrators caused damage to the nerves of the hands of people that are using them, we would hear about this all the time. The vibrator market, the vibe industry, $2.5 billion globally, some 60 million sex toys sold annually, according to a report in the New York Post from a few years ago, if this was a thing that happened, even in a tiny percentage of cases, when you're talking about 60 million sex toys, most of those millions of sex toys being vibrators, there would be scores of women. There would be class action lawsuits by this point. So Occam's razor. What's the likelier explanation here? Vibrators cause nerve damage and Big Vibe has somehow managed to cover that news up successfully for decades? Or you were gripping your vibrator perhaps in a way that you don't typically grip your vibrator and you put a little pressure on a nerve that typically you don't put much pressure on and it's never happened before with this vibrator. Keep using this vibrator. See if it ever happens again with this vibrator. Or your vibrator caused nerve damage and it's only just catching up to you now and because there aren't stories in the newspaper every day and again, class action lawsuits about this, you are the only person this has ever happened to. What's the likelier explanation? One-off held the vibrator in a weird, wonky way or vibrators destroy the central nervous system? I think it's the weird wonky way. You're holding it in a funny way that you don't usually hold it. Keep using that vibrator. Keep trying. I predict it's not going to happen again. And I can infer, based on the fact that there aren't those class action lawsuits I was talking about, it's not a thing that happens at all. Hey, Dan, Nancy, and youth. 
I am a bi cis man, and I have a friend who is a straight cis woman. She describes herself as queer because she is a demisexual. And part of me is supportive of that because politically speaking, it's good to have a broad coalition of people who are openly queer and who can forward the movement. But the sort of gatekeepy part of me says that a straight cis person is just not queer. And that part of me doesn't seem to be terribly productive. So tell me, Dan, how can I get over that? Look, don't tell anybody, but I'm with you. I don't think that if you're straight and cis, that just because you're a demisexual, which is someone who doesn't experience sexual attraction to a person in the absence of some sort of emotional bond having been formed. I don't think that makes you queer. I don't think being poly straight and cis means you're queer necessarily or kinky straight and cis means you're queer necessarily. You don't have to get over this gatekeeping instinct that you've got. But if you have any sort of instinct towards self-preservation. You wouldn't say these things in front of a microphone like I just said them. Your friend is free to identify as queer and then confuse people about what that means because somebody will probably assume if she tells them that she's queer, that she's at least bisexual, right? And then, you know, if someone assumes that she's bisexual because she identifies as queer. And then that person who is also a woman hits on her. She's going to have some explaining to do. All right, fine, fine, fine. You can think your friend probably isn't queer and probably shouldn't identify as queer and it cheapens what it means to be queer and confuses people about what identifying as queer is supposed to communicate. You can have that gatekeeping impulse And keep your mouth shut too, which I just failed spectacularly to do. I'm going to hear now probably from some straight cis demisexuals who are very angry at me that I don't think that they're queer. But it doesn't matter in this instance what I think. Anybody is free to identify sexually as anything they care to identify as sexually. You're not free to dictate to everyone else on earth what their own private opinions might be about your sexual orientation or identity. You know, there are fundy Christians out there who think that being gay is a choice. I think they're wrong. I'm free to say they're wrong. You can think your demisexual friend isn't queer. She's free to think you're wrong. She's free to tell you you're wrong. But she won't have to tell you you're wrong if you don't make the mistake of telling her that you don't think she's queer. Hi, Dan, Nancy, and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I am a 30-year-old cis straight-ish woman living in the Pacific Northwest, and I have been in a partnership for the past three years, um, and I think through this relationship have come to discover something about myself sexually, which is that I really struggle when my partner initiates sex, specifically in the way that it relates to growing up as a woman in this culture. I think throughout my girlhood, I was put in a lot of situations where I felt like I didn't have 
control over my body or I felt pressured to do something sexually that I didn't want to do or was in a power dynamic where I felt like I couldn't say no. Melissa Phoebos calls this empty consent. Um, so I would say I just like consented to a lot of things that I didn't want to do with my body growing up. I think even with a loving partner, sometimes the feeling of initiation or him like desiring something for me sort of triggers that feeling of feeling like pressured or feeling out of control or like I can't say no, even even when I like want him. And I guess that's just making me feel kind of depressed. Like I want to feel like being desired by this person is like empowering and hot and sexy. And instead I'm just like, makes me feel really small and yeah I don't know pressured so I don't know it's like I'm trying to honor the reality of being put off by that while also like not wanting to reject my partner he grew up in really religious environment very sexually repressed so also it's like very I feel very sensitive to not perpetuating that shame for him so I don't know do you have thoughts about this like help me make sense of this Joining me to help tackle this question, Rena Martin, a certified women's intimacy coach. Hey, Rena, how are you doing? I'm fantastic, Dan. How are you? Good, good. Let's make sense of this. You help a lot of women who are struggling with shame and a lot of women who have uh, a sexual history that includes consent violations or moments that they now look back on and feel like the consent was uh, empty. How, how can we help uh, this caller? Well, I think first of all, we need to start off with a basic understanding of how our brains work because our brains are always trying to protect us. And from what it sounds like, historically speaking, her brain has made this association between sex and a lack of control and a lack of bodily autonomy. So it makes complete sense why now, uh, when she's in a loving relationship, her brain is still equating sex as being dangerous. She's made a, a strong association. The first thing I wrote down when I started like scribbling some notes, a strong association between male desire and feeling violated. And she's not able to break that association, even with a guy that she likes, she's been with for three years and whose desire is welcomed. She's that the, the, those early experiences were so negative, you know, negotiating, you know, being in a room with a guy who's into her, who wants things from her. How do you break that association? Right. So what you got to do is essentially let your brain know that that was then and this is now, because it sounds like what's happening is she's going into a trauma response known as fawning which is you avoid conflict in the moment as a way to protect yourself because flight and fight aren't typically responses that that most women especially uh, resort to in moments where they feel that sexually speaking their autonomy is going to be taken from them. So yeah, how do you start to let your brain know, no, this is safe? There are a few ways of, of doing that. I will say that BDSM, and role play are such beautiful healing modalities when it comes to this. Um, so I can I can go through a few ways that that works. <laughs> oh, that's going to strike a lot of people as counterintuitive. She was in situations yeah. where she felt unsafe, um, that she felt like threatened. You, you know, you, a lot of women have this experience that a lot of men don't understand. And I think gay men can be more sensitive to this because we have sex with men too. We know how scary 
those testosterone-soaked dick monsters can be. Not at quite the disadvantage that women are often with bigger and more strong, uh, more powerful men. But often you're in a situation where because of fear, you consent to something because you don't feel free to say no. And your suggestion is she experiment in a controlled way with situations where you're playing with power or playing with fear? Exactly. Because what we need to do is introduce opposite action that our brain likes evidence. Because right now, all the evidence that it's gotten for a really long time is powerlessness and sex go hand in hand. So I'm not necessarily saying that she needs to become a submissive tomorrow. That is one way to do it, though. And if you negotiate it in a way where you are willfully submitting, that that's part of the play, then it's not quite the same as what she used to experience because she's actually in the director's chair now. Well, that that paradox when it comes to submission is that giving up your power, there's that moment where you take it back and you really feel your power at that moment when you take it back, when it is returned to you or it is, you know, you reassert your power. And then there's the flip side, which of course you're about to get into, which is being more dominant. Now, now when you start talking about DS, I think we should make a distinction between like dom sub play and BDSM. Cause when you say BDSM, people think whips and props and costumes and outfits. And sometimes BDSM is just subtle. It's about taking power play that's already there and that you may be triggered by or reacting to in a negative way. And in a way, exaggerating it to the point of play or like I like to say cops and robbers with your pants off and and uh, sex and orgasms. Right, exactly. So and I think it's I think it's Lena Dune who says this that in every relationship there are power dynamics at play and it's up to us to choose whether to negotiate those or not. And with this caller historically speaking those power dynamics were the default setting. That wasn't a mindful negotiation that was happening. So yes, on the one hand, she can negotiate, okay, I am actually requesting that you initiate. I am requesting that I surrender control. Or on the other hand, and I've seen this work really well with clients of mine who have a history of um, sexual abuse and assault, doing a little bit of, again, light role play. We don't need to bust out the whips and the chains and the costumes, but negotiating scenarios where you are the instigator and it's understood ahead of time that that's the role that you're going to play. And and there's ways to start dabbling in this that that aren't within the kink and role play spectrum too. Yeah, let's, let's talk about that a little bit because let's, let's just throw it out there that she's not interested in any sort of like DS or BDSM. How does she break that association if this kind of play and, and play can be very healing. Like I, I don't want people out there to, to, to dismiss this advice. I think it's really good advice. Play can be very healing. Uh, but if this kind of play doesn't appeal to her, if it doesn't get her wet, what different kinds of approaches can she take to, to break that association between that she's made or that was made for her by shitty men between male desire and this kind of panic fear response? Right. So one easy way to start is just take him initiating off the table for a defined period of time. Um, I had a client who would go into this kind of trauma response because she had a history of being with people who were abusive. And so for a time, and I think it only took about two weeks of her saying, you know, from now on, let's just try this experiment. I take my own clothes off. 
from now on, we're not doing missionary where you're on top of me. Because we, we kind of teased apart what are the things that are actually throwing her into the trauma response. And when we looked at the individual elements, it wasn't her new boyfriend initiating. It was actually these small components. So that could be a way to go about it. It was her boyfriend undressing her instead of her having the agency and undressing herself. Her boyfriend being on top of her as other men may have been on top of her in the past during experiences she found unpleasant. So the advice then would be to like pick apart things moment by moment, break it out into beats and isolate those things that may be pulling you back to those shitty past experiences in your head. Exactly. Exactly. And it doesn't have to be this forever thing. It can be, hey, I have a request to make for the next two weeks, for the next month, how about we try X, whatever you know that X control factor is that she's already identified. And that's going to quickly send those new, the, the new inputs into her brain that say, hey, you actually are in control here. You do have a choice. You do have autonomy over your body. And I'm going to put in another plug here for DS kind of play, playful play, like smiles on your faces and enjoying each other, that sometimes it's easier to see what you're attempting to control or making yourself aware of the control that you have if you exaggerate it. In a playful, mutually pleasurable way, you inflate it and then you can, you know, you blow it up and you can see it better and get your hands around it. You know, sometimes when people struggle with past negative experiences where they didn't feel in control and they want to feel more in control, they turn the dials so subtly that it's really not tapping into their erotic imagination in a powerful, stark, easily identified way that, yes, it emphasizes, yes, you have more control right now because you're initiating, because you're saying what will happen next. And that can be fun for a partner, uh, to, to hear where like somebody else is going to completely decide moment to moment what happens. And if that helps you heal, if that helps you get past these things that may be damaging your relationship, it's a really terrific approach. It, to, it to is. It and, and and it. Exactly. Exactly. It's almost like you're taking this huge magnifying glass to it all. And, and yeah, turning this into a scene, turning this into fun. I like to say make sex fun again. And I know that's easier said than done for, for a lot of, um, you know, trauma survivors, but. Oh my God. Just, just that phrase, make anything, anything again, that traumatizes me after the last five years. Like (laughs) I I get it. I get it. But Oh my God. Oh my God. Like Trump's all over the news all the time. Um, yeah, I don't too soon. Like maybe in a hundred years we could put that on a hat, but right now, uh, it feels a little too soon. Um, while we have you, can I, can I keep you on for one more question? Absolutely. Hi, Dan. I'm a Magnum subscriber and the father of a 16-year-old girl. I'm calling because we recently found out that she was sexually assaulted by an instructor while at camp when she was 12 years old. She hid this from us for about four years, and we only found out about it when her behavior started getting out of control and she asked to see a therapist. Here's the problem I'm hoping you and maybe one of your psychologist friends can help us with. Therapists are what's called mandatory reporters. When a child has an experience like this, they have to tell the police. Our daughter does not want to go through questioning and possibly a trial, so she's not telling the therapist and has sworn us to secrecy. She won't ID the guy, so I have no idea who he is. The thing is, 
Because of this, we don't think she's getting the help that she needs for the PTSD she obviously has and can't be medicated away with the low doses of Prozac she's taking. Her therapist is basically working blindfolded. We tried to convince our daughter to talk to the therapist about it, despite the consequences, but she won't have it. She says she waited this long to talk about it, and she can wait another year and a half until she's 18. But these are extremely important and formative years, and she's just not getting the support that she needs. I have at least taken the step of anonymously affording the board of the camp of what happens so that they can be more vigilant. Other than that, I have no idea what to do. So I thought of you when I heard this question, because in addition to being a women's intimacy coach, uh, you're a former sex crimes prosecutor with the Los Angeles County DA's office. Yeah. Yeah. I spent 14 years as a prosecutor before uh, making a pretty big career transition here. So what would your advice for this dad be, for a dad in this situation to be? Well, first and foremost, Regarding disclosure and mandated reporting, which is basically just a fancy way of saying that a therapist is required to break confidentiality in certain scenarios, that varies state by state. So first of all, I would encourage the caller to look up what the laws are in his state regarding mandated reporting. But generally speaking, if we don't have a name for the perpetrator, if the therapist isn't given a name... Um, therapists don't have a duty to investigate. That's not their role. That's law enforcement's role. So if if his daughter were to go in and give the same amount of information that she's given her dad, the caller, as far as I know, that would not trigger mandated reporting on the therapist's part because there's no one known to report. Okay, but uh, with the caveat that these laws vary by state and dad might want to double check before he assures his daughter that she can talk about what happened to her without naming names and get better and more specific help from the therapist she's seeing right now without the risking triggering an investigation by the authorities. Exactly. Exactly. And I will say that typically speaking, and this is on the low end, there's about a 10 year delay from when sexual assault happens and when uh, somebody seeks therapy for it. And it's usually not, I'm going to therapy because I was abused or assaulted. It's, I'm going to therapy because my life is kind of falling apart. And and I feel like that's a little bit of what, of what we're seeing here, that she's got other things going on, and that's why she's now disclosing. But most importantly, she's got to heal on her own terms. Uh, and, you know, yeah. this is about the daughter and about her trauma and her healing, but it's impossible not to listen to this story and think there are other girls in danger. You know, the kind of person, kind of man who works in a camp who would sexually assault a 12 year old is going to continue to assault 12 year olds if he can get away with it. And so how do you factor that in not to put pressure on this kid who's just beginning to deal with her trauma? Is it helpful to say to valorize reporting because you may be saving other girls who are being abused by this person right now or could be abused next summer at camp from suffering what you've suffered? Right. I mean, I think that's a really strong argument to make is really you're you're protecting other girls. I think dad needs to be commended for the fact that he reached out to the camp and said, I don't know who this person is, but there's abuse happening. But on the other hand, you can't force anyone to use the words and and to name names. 
and, and you don't want to guilt trip her. You, you know, the, 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 this, the girl is like working through this and you don't want to say, you know, every minute that you're working through this, so you're not ready to name a name, you're responsible for somebody else potentially getting abused, but it's hard not to worry about that. It's hard not to, 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 for me, when I hear this call, like if, if, if I would want to say to this girl, as soon as you're ready, yeah. Please name the name. And, and maybe, you know, there's something in the call where the dad says, when she's 18, the, the implication is at 18, she'll be ready to to name the name and, and deal with the pressure that, like, in high school, she doesn't want to be known as the kid who got raped at 12 because there's a, a court case and, and she's all over. And so, yeah, I'm just, like, trying to balance that taking care of this kid and the worries that just come when you think about other kids at that camp. Yeah, of course, of course. And perhaps if they are in a state that follows these, if we don't have a name, there's no mandated reporting guidelines, which will hopefully encourage her to be more open about this with her therapist. And she starts healing more quickly Then maybe that age of 18 timeline is going to be shortened. But I will say this, Dan, not to get so doom and gloom about it, but having been in the inner workings of the criminal justice system, in a perfect world, yes, she would get the support she needs from a therapeutic level. She would then make a report to law enforcement. He would be arrested. He would go to trial. There would be enough evidence to convince him beyond a reasonable doubt, and he would be punished, incapacitated from doing this to someone else, and then rehabilitated and let back out into society. That is not the world we live in. And re-traumatization through trial is real. And in cases like this where there is delayed reporting, here we're looking at a four-year gap, there's not going to be remaining forensic evidence, right? And, And it would make it, just on its face, what I'm seeing as a former prosecutor, unless we have other victims who describe a similar MO that he was using, or unless we have a confession... This might be a really difficult case to prove. And so what at that point is the kinder thing to do to the daughter, to do for the survivor? Is it to put her in front of a room of strangers having to relive this and then being told essentially after the fact there just wasn't enough evidence? Oh, my God. The re-traumatization of going through a trial and seeing the man who raped you walk. Exactly. And I've seen it. I've seen it. And that's you know, one of the reasons I I stopped prosecuting sex crimes because our system is broken. Jurors do not like to convict in cases where the people are known to one another. They love to convict in cases where it's an unknown assailant. It's the guy in the ski mask because parents don't want to believe that every time they send their kids to camp, that they're in you know that. Yes. This they don't want to believe that this is actually the kind of world that we live in and it's absolutely devastating. But let's let's pause here to, to emphasize to the caller, to the dad that he is doing everything he can and doing everything right. Supporting this kid, not pressuring the kid, contacting the camp to say you have a problem, maybe they can institute uh, reforms that are just blanket like nobody's alone with a camper ever again. No one no staff member alone with a camper ever again. That may, if this person's still working there, make it harder or impossible for them to continue to victimize kids. Your caller, you're doing everything you can and you're doing everything right. And you are, he asks how he can support his daughter. You are supporting your daughter. 
a thousand percent. And maybe he needs some additional support. It could be helpful if he's got, um, you know, some, some shame or guilt or anger or frustration that's brewing inside of him to have his own trusted mental health advisor to, to process that with. Rena Martine, certified women's intimacy coach, former sex crimes prosecutor with the Los Angeles County DA's office. Follow her on Instagram at underscore rena.martine, M-A-R-T-I-N-E underscore. Rena, thank you so much for jumping on the phone. I hope you'll come back on the show. And you have a book coming out. I do, early 2024, because publishing is slow. So yes, I do. <laughs> and no title yet, but please come back on the show when the, when the book is coming out. And, and we'll take some more calls and talk about the book. I would love to. Thank you, Dan. Hi, Dan, and the Tech Savvy At-Risk Youth. I'm a mostly cis, gay, queer person out of Chicago, Illinois. And I recently joined this gym by my new apartment, and I found that What's been developing over the last month and a half-ish is this, like, really strong, like, exhibitionist kink or potentially, like, cruising kink or fantasy. I basically really enjoy being watched by other guys working out. And then also when I get into the locker room or the showers or the steam room, I enjoy having eyes on me as well as looking at other people. There's been a few situations where, like, me and some guys at the gym have, like, like kind of showed off in the showers. One guy even, like came and jacked off while I was in the shower, like across from him. But before I go further into this, like cruising and exhibition kink more, I wanted to get your advice and opinion on like cruising protocol or like rules, etiquette about that, as well as like any advice you have to someone beginning to explore this like exhibitionist cruising kink in general. I'm young. I'm not stupid, but I may be naive. People get annoyed at me when I'm not condemnatory, when I don't come down on anyone who self-identifies as an exhibitionist or having an exhibitionistic streak. But I don't. I think that lots of people are exhibitionists and lots of people are voyeurs. And there needs to be spaces in the world for people to get their exhibitionistic rocks off and their voyeuristic rocks off. The trick is to find those spaces where that's welcomed where it's kind of a norm in that particular space. You know, a family YMCA in a suburb outside of Cincinnati, that's not going to be a very cruisy gym locker room, but a gym in a mostly gay neighborhood with a largely gay clientele in an urban area in Chicago or New York or San Francisco or Seattle or Portland or Dallas or Atlanta that's going to be a potentially more receptive in, in every sense of the term audience for the show that you want to put on, that you're getting off on putting on. I sometimes think that people have problems when you talk about exhibitionism because what leaps to mind is the, you know, the creep with the erection leaping out from behind the tree in the park, flashing people or the asshole on the subway or the bus pulling his dick out and making women in particular around them feel incredibly unsafe, violated, uncomfortable, threatened. And then people project those fears, anxieties, judgments onto gay men in a locker room at a pretty much gay gym, kind of letting the towel slip open. And as you've probably discovered, caller, at your gym, 
is people don't just, you know, strip off and waggle their dicks in front of each other. There is this dance. There is this subtle, slow escalation where one person who is getting undressed will subtly signal to another person who is also getting undressed that they've, you know, seen them. And there will be this moment of eye contact. And in that moment, and if there's no eye contact, that's somebody shutting you down. But in that moment, that even brief moment of eye contact, consent can be requested, granted, obtained, If you make eye contact with somebody as you're getting undressed, as you're putting your towel on, as you're moving toward the shower and they make eye contact with you and follow you and continue to look at you, okay, you have, without any words being spoken, you have your, yes, you have a kind of consent. Also, when you talk about this kind of exhibitionism, people will leap to defend others in that space who don't want to watch you two eye-fucking each other or stroking your dicks at each other. The reality is that most men in a space like that are careful, you know, once they've established mutual interest from somebody else to angle themselves or work themselves into a corner of the steam room or a couple of, you know, the far off showers where they're the only ones that can see what each other are doing. Most people who are exhibitionists, gay male exhibitionists in those kinds of spaces are considerate. Everyone's sample is skewed because you notice the ones, you only see the ones who are being clumsy or inconsiderate. And then everyone thinks all exhibitionists in a space like that are clumsy and inconsiderate. And you do want to be considerate. Not everybody at an urban gym is a a gay man who wants to look at your dick or your ass. Not every gay man at an urban gym is a someone who wants to look at your dick or ass. Some gay men get offended when, you know, guys show off in front of them on the assumption that just because they're gay, they would welcome that kind of attention or they want to see your gym shower boner. But so long as you know, you're not at the family YMCA in the suburb of Cleveland or Cincinnati, so long as you are engaged in that and being very sensitive to that very subtle dance of acknowledgement and very slow escalation and a consideration for other people who do not want to watch or be involved or walk in on you two in the sauna, you're good. You're good. What you're doing is part of what makes going to the gym as an adult gay man a reward in a way, you know, to compensate for the fact that when you were a gay boy in middle school or high school, having to go to the gym was hell. Now, getting to go to the gym, getting to go to the gym can be fun. And this is one of the reasons, one of the ways it can be fun for certain kinds of gay men, not for all gay men. So... Have fun, be careful, escalate slowly, be considerate of others, and you have my blessing. Hey Dan, my boyfriend and I live in an apartment in New York, and we're both from New York, but when we first met, my boyfriend was living and working in Houston, and I flew out to him a couple of times and really loved it there, loved the gay scene. My only issue is that he has like a couple of gay male friends who... 
I can tell kind of don't like me that much because to them it kind of looks like, you know, I came in into his life and then he moved back to New York. And I can't help but think that there's this kind of jealousy feeling that they might have that there's a feeling that I, you know, took him away or something, um, which I can totally relate to because I've had friends who get into relationships and wind up moving and there is a little bit of that resentment, but I also feel like my boyfriend is super hot and I know you've talked about hot boyfriend syndrome before and we're going back to Houston for Labor Day weekend and I'm going to be at one of those big gay boat parties on the lake in in Austin and I'm feeling just like insecure about it. I like to think that I'm confident, but you know, we have a really great relationship. We're in a really good place. We just had our first threesome and it went super well, but I can't help but feel a little insecure going into this space where I know that, you know, some of his friends are going to be like boxing me out of the conversation. And I'm just wondering how you think I should navigate that, you know, being around a big group of gay men sometimes can make me feel a little bit not welcome, I guess. I don't know if that's something historically that I've had a problem with, with trusting men or what that really is, my own insecurities, but I'm just wondering if you could give me some advice. Couples don't go to parties on lakes outside of Houston somewhere or anywhere else to be with and talk to each other. If a couple just wants to be together and talk to each other and sit across a small table from each other, holding hands and making unbroken eye contact for four or five hours, they can stay home and do that. Couples go to parties to socialize, to interact with other people So you should expect that when you and your hot boyfriend go to this boat party in Houston, there are going to be other people there. And you should have a conversation with your boyfriend that acknowledges your insecurities, that with a couple of his friends, you kind of feel like they might resent you for the fact that he moved away to live with you in New York. And when you're with them, and I don't know how much time you've spent with them since you moved to New York, you sometimes feel like you know, they're taking it out on you by trying to box you out, monopolize his time. And if your boyfriend doesn't see it, or if when you're able to cite examples of it, they're really so subtle that you find it hard to unpack to your boyfriend's satisfaction, the wrongs supposedly being done you, well, then you might want to chalk that up to your insecurities. You know, I'm not great around large groups of gay men. My husband sometimes hosts boat parties in Seattle where everybody goes out on Lake Union and Lake Washington on a big boat in their bathing suits. And to make those bearable for me, you know what my strategy is? I don't go. You don't necessarily have to go on this boat to this party. You know, if your boyfriend wants to go, one of the things that's great about being in a couple is getting to that place where you're secure enough to sometimes do different things. Sometimes, you know, go to different places. If there's something solo and solitary that you would rather do while he's at that boat party, you can go do that thing. I like to go on long bike rides all by myself. I'm sure there's been a time when my husband's been at some big party socializing in his underpants where I was on a bike ride all by myself off uh, in the countryside. And then we get back together and it's good to see each other again. And I don't have to you know, watch him from the other side of the room while you know people are wishing I would 
disappear or evaporate because I disappeared and evaporated myself before the party began. If you're secure enough in this relationship that you can trust your boyfriend out of your sight, well, you can spare yourself the sight of him for a little while. You can be apart for a little while. Another strategy that's also worked for me is just to wander off. Every conversation that my husband has with other people at a party doesn't have to involve me and nor do I always want them to involve me. He's a music geek and likes to get into deep conversations about music that sometimes I find tedious. And if he's really getting into it with somebody and sharing stories and uh, topping each other, not in the sexual sense, but in the music trivia sense, I might wander off. And then a moment comes where he realizes he hasn't seen me for a while and he comes looking for me. And that's very affirming. And sometimes when I wander off, I find people to talk to on my own. But introvert to introvert, I sense that you are like me, an introvert. And I think, God, as a gay male introvert, I totally get it. Large groups of gay men in Speedos or thongs who are drunk, who are roasting in the sun, not gay men who are always at their impulse controlling best. And Ugh, yeah, if you can skip that party and then allow your boyfriend maybe to have some one-on-one time or two-on-one, one-on-two time, but not sexual with his friends who miss him without having to include you in the conversation, without having to bring you up to speed on their in-jokes, that could be a generous act that could pay dividends, that could Make his friends appreciate you more because being with you doesn't mean they never get to see him by themselves ever again. And in the end, if they're seeing him by themselves, it's because you are sparing yourself from having to attend a party that it really does sound like even if his friends were on the best behavior, even if his friends actually didn't resent you, even if his friends were happy to see you, you probably don't want to go to anyway. All right, before we get to this week's listener response calls, let's read some listener tweets. Ricardo Gomez tweets, I was featured on the latest episode of the Savage Lovecast doing some dirty talk in Spanish. Thank you at Fake Dan Savage for making my year. You are welcome, Ricardo. Thank you for making the Lovecast a hotter listen for my Spanish-speaking listeners last week. Voraciously tweets, Dan Savage breaking down Indiana business tax benefits was surprising audio, but the twist in the story is not one that I would have expected. No one who opened last week's Lovecast saw the small town zoning issues coming. Kind of like nobody sees those diaper-loving adult babies coming because diapers aren't see-through. Maggie Spain tweets regarding episode 826, Dan, vaginas are not anuses. Flared bases not required. Have you ever seen a period cup, a sperm sponge? Thankfully, it's harder to lose things, quote, up there than in the anus. Soft-boiled eggs, though, still a no for me. Mrs. J. Stokey about the same call tweets, for the person who likes the experience of laying eggs, please don't put real eggs up there. There are sex toys made just for this, ovipositors or ovipositors that come with jelly eggs that are safe for insertion. Hashtag Savage Lovecast. I think a big part of the turn-on for that, well, not caller, that was somebody who was tweeting and then got tagged into the show, a big part of the turn-on for that person and her husband was eating the eggs after she laid them. And the eggs that come with ovipositors, a sex toy originally designed by and for people who fantasize about aliens laying eggs inside them. They aren't made of jelly you can spread on bread and eat, but jelly like they make certain kinds of dildos out of. Still, 
probably safer. All right, and a little bit more Twitter business in a tweet about the podcast. Last week, I said twinks are guys. Of course, not all guys are twinks, but all twinks are guys. That said, I'm sure there are lots of twink-identified boy dykes out there, and let me be the first to say that your twinkiness is valid. All right, if you want me to read your tweet on an upcoming episode of the Savage Lovecast, be sure to include the hashtag Savage Lovecast, and a big thank you to everybody who posted your social media this week about the show. Help spread the word, and we really appreciate it. And now, on to listener response calls. Hey, this is for the caller in episode 827, concerned about their body being visible while they're riding on top. Girl, just get a cute little nightie or like a teddy or some form of lingerie that's see-through so your partner still sees your body, but you still mentally have that feeling of being covered up. Trust me, I understand. It's not about people actually seeing you it's about your brain thinking you're covered up so just get something kind of slinky and see-through and put that on and you'll be fine hey dan longtime listener just responding to that lady on episode 827 that had anxiety about uh you know writing her dude because of like body dysmorphia and putting weight on her man i definitely am a thick soft queen as well and have struggled with this in the past i always felt very self-conscious about being so out in the open hopping around and everything but i love dan's advice about the blindfold but if your trouble is you know feeling like you're putting too much weight on try putting your feet on the sides of his body and kind of like sit in a squat position and bounce in that way because it feels really good for me and also for him, I think even more. So gives you a little bit more control and yeah, you get a fun little workout out of it as well, a little booty pump. This is in response to the person in episode 827 who was self-conscious about being on top with their partner because of their size. I'm a fat gay man who, when I finally discovered men who were attracted to me physically, had a hard time reconciling their desire for me and my own feelings about my body. But one day it just dawned on me that no matter what size I was, there would always be people who found me at that size incredibly attractive. And my own feelings about my body really had nothing to do with their attraction. So... Whenever that pesky body shame voice came up during sex, I just started saying, this isn't about you right now. This guy doesn't care about you, body shame. He is into all of this, and I'm going to enjoy it. And over time, it worked, and I was more present, and I wasn't projecting how I felt about my body onto the men who were worshiping it. Plus, the sex just got better and better the more I let myself fully enjoy how much they loved my belly and my fat ass. And we're going to leave it there. Got a question for next week's Lovecast or something to say about something I said on this week's Lovecast? Use the Voice Memo app on your phone to record your question or your comment and email it to us at voicemail at savagelovecast.com. You can also call us at 206-302-2064. Hump 2022's lineup screens every weekend online between now and October 16th. And we're screening Hump in theaters in Seattle, Ann Arbor, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Minneapolis, Kansas City, Victoria, Atlanta, and Los Angeles. And did you know Hump filmmakers get a cut of every ticket sold? 
So, making a film for next year's festival, if you get in, good way to get laid and get paid. Go to humpfilmfest.com for tickets, streaming links, and all the info you need on submitting your film, your dirty little porno, to Hump 2023. There's no better way to celebrate National Butterscotch Pudding Appreciation Day coming up September 19th than by making some butterscotch pudding, spooning it into a pair of fuck first mugs, chill fuck, and then enjoy your butterscotch pudding with the person you fucked on September 19th. Get your pudding mix at your local grocer. Get your fuck first mugs at savage.love slash shop. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Rena Martine on Twitter at underscore Rena dot Martine underscore. And follow the tech savvy at risk youth on Twitter at Lovecast TSA. Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian. And me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy, we will all be back at you next week for another installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thank you so much for joining.